Welcome to Archive of the Month. Each month we take one item from the collection of Buckinghamshire Archives and use it to talk about the county's history. This month, Lisa Edwards looks at a photo of her dad as a child and investigates the post-war housing crisis through his memories of growing up in Slough. For this presentation, I'm going to be talking about the post-Second World War National Squatter Move that started in earnest in August 1946 and how this impacted on my own family in Slough, Buckinghamshire, using official documents and the memories of my, my dad, Alan Edwards, who recently passed away. The term squatter has many different connotations, defined by the organisation Shelter as a person who enters and occupies property without permission from the person entitled to possession of that property. Squatting over time has been vilified in the press normally being associated with radical social organisations. Interestingly, the movement that was born out of the deprivation of the Second World War was all of this. A phenomenon that it could be argued took the Afghan government completely by surprise as they struggled to fulfil election promises made. To put a little context to the situation, it should be remembered that house building slowed down for the duration and over 200,000 homes were destroyed by enemy action and a further 250,000 were so damaged that they were made uninhabitable. Added to this, hundreds of thousands of servicemen were returning home, and the population in general and the number of married couples had grown considerably since 1939. There were also over 160,000 Polish servicemen and their families who were granted the right to remain in the UK at the end of the war. Building materials and skilled labour were in short supply. In his research, Alan Holmans estimated that in 1939, housing shortages in the United Kingdom were at least 500,000. And by 1945, this figure was 2.1 million households needing a home. And so the post-war housing crisis became a perfect storm. And by October 1946, 39,535 people had taken matters into their own hands. In July 1946, there were, according to the Slough Borough Council notes, 6,250 families on the housing waiting list in Slough Borough, and at least 443 families consisting of husband, wife, plus children, permanently living in single rooms. To make matters worse, the Greater London Council was planning to send 40,000 people from Greater London to Slough to be rehoused. Until August 1946, my family on both sides didn't have a home of their own. Each lived in one room within a shared house. I found reference to my mum's family in the housing committee report of the borough engineer for Slough Council, and it said that a house was being let on the 31st of August 1946 to ex-merchant navy man James Keenan. He had first applied for a house on the 17th of July 1939. He had four children, two males aged six and five months, and two females aged eight and three and a half. The eight-year-old was my mum, Jean Keenan. There were 11 persons living in four rooms. Mr Keenan said the family had used the use of one room and that they'd been living in the room for eight years. My mum's family were lucky and they were finally given a house. My dad's family, not so lucky. My dad and his parents and younger brother lodged in a single room in various houses within Sippenham from 1943. 
and sometimes slept on the floor of the hygienic ice factory on the Slough Trading Estate, where my granddad was a night watchman. The last room they had was in a house on Haymill Road, Sippenham, directly opposite the army camp housing injured Canadian soldiers who'd been discharged from the Canadian Red Cross Hospital in Taplow and were waiting to be sent back home to Canada. And it was this camp that was to change my dad's life. The camp had a cinema that repeated the same films over and over again. My dad was five years old and the Canadian soldiers would let him in to watch the big screen. He was often given chocolate too. He would tell us how for a long time he used to think it was normal for a person to have limbs missing or be badly burned, as many of the soldiers at the camp had terrible battle scars. In 1946, the soldiers were starting to leave and by August the camp was emptying out. The day that the last soldiers left, word got around of their departure and local people began moving in. My grandparents picked a hut and chalked their name up on the door. Though by the time they'd managed to get a van for their little pieces of furniture, Another family had taken it. They ended up living in what had been the camp storage hut, a vast space that they shared with another family. And in order to afford some privacy to each, blankets were put up by my granddad to divide the room in two. Water was collected from the wash house and heat provided by a small wood burning stove that heated only the area directly around it. Toilet consisted of a bucket placed in a shed. The water was always dirty to begin with, and unless you sat right next to the stove, you would be cold. The huts were freezing cold in the winter and extremely hot in the summer. For my dad, the camp provided a world of adventure. Young boys playing in the detritus left behind by the Canadian Army, and understanding the danger they placed themselves in. A famous tale he often recounted is the time he and his friends found a stock of bullets left behind by the troops and how they tossed them onto a bonfire and ran for cover when the shells exploded in all directions. I cannot be sure if this is just a childhood myth, but it does make for a good family story. I've been looking at newspaper cuttings from the period, and it would appear that the Haymill Road camp they moved into wasn't actually disused. The Canadian Army left in the morning, but they were due to be replaced in the afternoon by a unit of Polish soldiers from Amersham. However, by the time they arrived to take up residence, Dozens of families had moved in and the camp was almost full. Newspaper reports talk of the squatter invasion spreads. This week, three more camps have been seized. Two at Sippenham, Royston Way and Haymill Road, and one near the social centre. My family hadn't just moved in, they'd seized the camp. Local journalists wrote of council officials worried by the increasing numbers of squatters, so much so they were desperate to keep the location of the remaining hooded camps a secret. They didn't want families coming in from other areas trying to settle, especially those from London. This, I have to admit, was part of post-war social history that I knew nothing of. And after seeing the newspaper headlines deploring the behaviour of the squatters, I wanted to know more. You are looking at a photograph of the camp invaders. It is of my dad and his brother taken outside hut number 12 by a local reporter at the time of the occupation. We're not sure why the picture was taken, but they were given some bread rolls if they smiled for the camera. We do not think that it ever made it to print. I would suggest that it doesn't really depict the mood of the highly emotive local newspaper headlines of the time, which could be a reason for it not being used. Seems quite shocking now, but government statistics from 1946 state that 39,500 people in the UK occupied 1,038 camps. 
Camp invaders were accused by politicians of the day of trying to jump the housing queue. The two little boys in the photograph waiting to enjoy their bread rolls had no idea the trouble they and others like them were allegedly causing council officials in their plans for post-war reconstruction work. In August 1946, it was reported that harvest work was being hampered in Buckinghamshire because the plan had been for agricultural workers to be housed in some of the army camps. In Burnham Beaches, prisoners of war were due to start clearing the land of military waste, but the camp they were to move into had been taken over by homeless people, and so the beaches remained closed to the public. The chairman of the Burnham Beaches squatter camp defended the families who had taken refuge in the huts and wrote that many of them had previously lived in terrible conditions, sometimes six in a room or they had been separated from each other. Letters to the Times newspaper called for the squatters to be returned to the properties they had vacated because the country was seemingly turning to mob rule. The Times editorial of September 10, 1946, cites the problem of the enormous gap between housing demand and housing supply and talks of more than 250,000 people in London alone waiting to be rehomed. Some of the camps were in very poor condition. The Ministry of Health were responsible for housing and drafted people in to look at the sanitation within them. The Royston Way camp in Sippenham was described as dilapidated and not fit for habitation. The council are said to have done what they could to bring it up to standard. An invasion meant all the housing and sanitary departments within the council had to concentrate on making sure the camps were fit to live in. Again, this had added to the bad press coverage. The invaders were accused of holding up new housing plans because of work time being spent on them and not on house building. When the council visited the Haymill Road camp, they put up a dividing wall in my dad's hut and so the blanket that separated the families could finally be taken down. My dad thought the camp sanitation was probably very basic. He remembered the water from the wash house would often be a rusty colour when he first turned the tap on. And it wasn't until some time later when my dad got sick that they finally realised the hut they were living in was in fact on top of the main sewer pit. Yet, for all the negative press, the camps were well organised and had elected committees and, as already noted in the Burnham Beaches camp, a chairperson. There were camp rules. The council wanted a code of rule to be enforced in each camp. The number of people that were allowed in each hut was to be controlled and if any family broke the code of rule, they were to be evicted from the site. The council decided to charge five shillings per week for the camp, including water and rates. People were put on the electrical registers as the camp bringing their permanent address. Slough and Datchet Electrical Energy Company charged the camp direct and monies were collected from the residents by the camp committee. The Ipswich Road gun site was deemed uninhabitable yet Slowborough Council still charged rent. The people were moved out as soon as they could and the walls of the buildings were taken down so that no one else could move in. Noel Mobbs, director of Slough Estates, stated that he wanted the Slough Stadium cleared of huts and said he'd organise help to do it. Many of those in my dad's camp ended up living on the same street in the 1950s when the council built new houses. Some even became councillors. He talked of the day that he discovered they had got a new house. He came home from school to find the camp had emptied, everyone had gone. He finally found someone to tell him that the people had been given the keys to their new homes and to try the new estate. He had no idea where they'd gone, but walked to where he'd been told they might be. After what seemed an eternity to a child of 11, he saw his younger brother in the front garden of a house. 
He was shouting at him quite hysterically. You'll never believe this, but we have an inside toilet and a bath and everything. My grandparents, so relieved to have keys, had forgotten to let the school know where they had moved to. I can see why the squatters angered officials. I can even see how they might have cost the council extra, both in times of time and money. I also see a group of people who were so desperate for a space of their own that they could take the chance of moving into a dilapidated army hut rather than remain where they were. It was a time when returning servicemen who were promised a better life by the powers that be as a result of their wartime victory often felt let down and frustrated. They wanted what they saw as rightfully theirs, a job and a decent place to live. Civilians who'd struggled for six years, many bombed out of their homes, wanted a place to start again. It is hardly surprising then that when properties became empty, they seized the opportunity to try for a better life. The camps became an important part of the answer to the housing crisis and remained in use by Slowborough Council for many years. Now, in the relative luxury of the 21st century, I cannot begin to imagine what living in this way must have been like. Yet the time you're speaking of is not that long ago. It is still within a lifetime. But to me, looking at it through my dad's memories and newspaper cuttings, it does feel like a different world, a different country. And the most surprising thing is that this quiet revolution of 1946, when nearly 40,000 people went against the government and took what they needed, has simply become folklore, where members of Facebook groups discuss their memories of living as a squatter and yet the importance of this monumental movement in social history does not seem to have been recognised elsewhere.